www.brfcs.com. By the fans. For the fans. Since 1996. Welcome to the 17th BRFCS podcast. I'm Wen Waihu, the BRFCS editor. And once again this week, we've quite a range of issues for discussion. Now, given the dearth of reliable information coming out of the club, and at the same time, a wealth of misinformation that's been fed to Rovers fans, both via the media and outlets such as our own BRFCS website forums, we're going to try and clarify a number of issues in today's podcast. Uh, These will include the events concerning the Rao brothers at Wigan, Steve Keane's contract situation and the events surrounding its signing. The Qatari bid, which is still being denied by Venkis, and also the new filing at Companies House. We'll also be discussing uh, Steve Keane's position uh, in some detail and looking at uh, the transfer window uh, and the role of agents in the game. And finally, we'll have a brief discussion of the club, past, present and future. Of course, we'll also be discussing the Cardiff game in brief and uh, having a little chat about the Swansea game and the protests. In today's uh, studio, we have uh, once again, Cammy, our chief reporter. Hello, Cammy. How are you? Morning, Gwen. I'm fine. Yeah, good to have you on. Yeah, good to be on. And also we have our news editor, Paul. Hello, Paul. Morning, Wen. Morning, Cammy. Feeling a lot brighter after four goals yesterday. Most definitely. Good, good. Yeah. And also uh, a special guest. Once again, we're, we're very happy to welcome back uh, Alan Nixon of The Mirror and The People. Uh, everyone will recall that uh, uh, Alan was with us uh, for one of our first podcasts uh, towards the end of the transfer window. Uh, he was um, looking at the... Um, the situation with regards to the ins and outs of the transfer window. Uh, And also he was uh, looking back and reflecting on uh, many years of following Blackburn Rovers as a club. Uh, We're very happy to have him on again. Hello, Nico. How are you doing? Good to have you back on. Thank you for coming. No problem. Before we go on to discuss uh, the various issues on today's podcast, we'd just like to pay a tribute to Gary Speed. Um, Last Sunday, uh, he passed away in tragic circumstances. And here at BRFCS, we'd just like to uh, pay our condolences, pay our respects uh, to the family and friends of Gary Speed. Um, We'll all have our own little memories of Gary, but um, I think uh, perhaps we should ask uh, Nico what his memories of uh, Gary are. Uh, having met him numerous times during his career. Um, Nico, uh, would you like to uh, tell us uh, your memories of Gary? He was just um, one of the actual nice guys of football. It's it's such a tragedy. You know, it was hard to believe when it happened. It's still hard to believe a week on. I mean, 42 years of age, mm. and taking his own life, it, it really is. It's incomprehensible. 
Mm. Football's a funny game. People will always tell stories about each other, and um, it can be a little bit sneaky and snide at times. I don't think I ever heard one bad story about Gary Speed. Um, an absolute gentleman, a true professional. I first met him when he did a charity quiz with him, uh, with Gary McAllister. He was only about 19, 20 at the time, but very at ease with everybody, very respectful to people, couldn't do enough for you. And then the end of his career, met him a lot at Bolton Wanderers when uh, he was still a good old pro at the age of 35 and still playing until yeah. he was 38, 39. But uh, unbelievable attitude towards the game. Look at the number of times he was at a club and he was captain. That says all you need to know. A bit of an unsung footballer in his way. Not an absolute superstar in terms of skill. But you could always count on a fella. Um, and it's just, it's it, you, you can't get your head around what's happened there at all. Yeah, yeah. Terrible, terrible tragedy. So, um, Cammy, did you uh, ever get to meet uh, Gary Speed? Um, I met him on a couple of occasions towards the end of his career. Um, and again, just echo what um, what Nicole's saying. Um, just just shocked. Uh, very few things in life shock me anymore. But uh, when I heard that last Sunday, um, literally I was in a state of shock. Um, very, very nice guy. Uh, I think the tributes this week from so many different people in and out, out of football really say, say everything uh, about um, uh, speed uh, as a man, to be honest, and thoughts and prayers are, you know, with his friends and particularly with his family, you know, for, for whom, you know, we, we just know him as the footballer, but he's somebody's, was somebody's husband, a father, a son, you know, uh, I just can't imagine the, the pain that those those people are going through. So thoughts and prayers with them. It's a very, very difficult time for them. Paul, um, I don't guess that you managed to meet him, but uh, you will have seen him on a number of occasions uh, playing for uh, Leeds, Everton, Bolton, I would have thought, Newcastle too. Uh, is that right? Do you have any special memories of Gary? Yes, I mean, unlike uh, Nico and Cammy, I never met Gary Speed, um, but my main memory of him is playing for Leeds United and Newcastle United and, uh, you know, just being one of those footballers who seemed to be ever-present, always putting in a shift in every match that you saw him. Um, I don't especially remember him at Bolton and Everton. I, I don't know why that is, but I just associate him with, with Leeds and Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for for me in the mind, he's always uh, he's always a Leeds player. Um, my my one abiding memory is uh, playing in the green and navy blue away strip. I think firing one into the Darwin end from about twenty twenty five yards with his right foot. I think that uh, that that shocked him as much as everyone else. I think <laughs> absolutely fantastic strike. But yeah, um, the the guy was uh, absolute model professional. And uh, yeah, he also came across to ordinary people like me as just been an all-round good guy. Oh. Well, thank you for those uh, comments on, on Gary. Um, if we could uh, move on now to uh, some discussion items for uh, today's podcast. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to uh, look at the events concerning the Rao brothers at Wigan. Now, uh, this is um, 
rather a, an, a, an interesting little story that we've got from uh, one of our members on BRFCS. Um, uh, Wiggy, uh, who has said it's OK for us to pass on this information, um, has contacted us to tell us uh, one or two details of what happened during the uh, um, half time. We already know that pre-match, um, our one of our members, Paul Melular, um, met uh, the Rao brothers uh, outside the stadium and had uh, a couple of uh, words with them. Um, he stresses that uh, there was uh, no abuse directed at them whatsoever. Um, it was very simply a case of telling what needed to be done at the club. And during the half time uh, interval, uh, a number of people uh, in the uh, Wigan corporate hospitality in the executive boxes there um, met um, Balaji Rao in the corridor. Uh, Mr. Balaji was with a group of uh, a few people and uh, they approached him and uh, he was very charming as usual and uh, uh, they introduced themselves. Now, the, the interesting thing there is that um, uh, Wiggy um, was uh, very uh, respectful towards him, um, explained very calmly that the first half performance at Wigan had been completely unacceptable, indicated that the manager was out of his depth and should be uh, should be fired. Um, apparently, Balaji responded that he was aware that drastic action had to be taken and that it would be taken. And uh, at this point, um, the other members uh, of the uh, Rovers um, supporters or, uh, sort of group um, chipped in with uh, agreement, saying that uh, they agreed with with Wiggy. Uh, nobody actually disagreed with uh, with him, and uh, Balaji was uh, uh, was very polite and, and said, "You know, we, we know what needs to be done." Now at this point. Uh, Wiggy asked him uh, about the rumour regarding the Qatari group, uh, whether they'd made an offer or not, and suggested that if it is true, then they should sell. One of uh, Balaji's um, uh, entourage then um, came in and said uh, that it was a bull, uh, and Mr. Balaji also um concurred with this and said that um the uh, the 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 qatari guy who presumably is re referring to the crown prince uh that he knew nothing about the bid that was the end of the exchange um the conversation at all times was not heated it's very calm and polite uh mr balaji was very charming apparently which um, uh, certainly fits in with uh, other um, uh, details given to us from the Pune 9, that uh, Mr. Balaji is a very charming gentleman. And the interesting thing out of that is that um, when, when the um, um, 
cor when the group in the corridor um, left, the Venkis group to themselves, apparently they were overheard saying one or two things. And whatever was said um, resulted in them leaving, leaving the uh, executive lounge and uh, actually leaving the ground, which quite obviously was, 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 was something that stunned, stunned Wiggy and it's also stunning me as well. Um, now, if we could just clarify from uh, the reports that um, Kami and Nico have, uh, clarify what possibly could have gone on there. Um, why, for example, are the uh, Venkis still denying uh, a Katara bid? Um, what was uh, the situation at that time uh, with regards to Steve, Steve Keane's contract situation? Um, <clears throat> if we could start off with Cami, what do you make of that uh, in relation to what you've heard from uh, other sources? Um, well, I'm outst well, I'm not shocked by them denying the Qatar bid, but um, without betraying any confidences, uh, that's a load of BS, to be honest. Uh, I, there was, as I've said in the previous podcast, uh, there was a bid from Qatar, uh, and you know, I've got conclusive proof of that this happening um, for, from my sources, and 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 I believe that to be true. So them continually denying that is just them digging a hole for themselves, which uh, in the very near future. Uh, will be uh, something that they're going to have to undig themselves uh, once the Qataris hopefully come out and uh, confirm that they did bid for Rovers. And, um, you know, the, the, these guys, they don't mess around. Um, I know they're after another club, but as soon as that deal's done, uh, they will come out and they will confirm exactly what happened with regards to this, uh, this bid. And then this is a hole that... Uh, unnecessary hole that Venkis have dug for themselves. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what they say once the Qataris confirm exactly what has gone on. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, I, I, I'm sure Wiggy is absolutely correct about people being courteous to them uh, and asking genuine questions of concern. Um, but you know, the, the, the Rao brothers were shocked by um, some of the abuse that they were getting during the game. Um, from from a large section of fans, it's the first time they've really experienced this kind of thing, uh, and I think the advisors, the bodyguards that they had, uh, advised them to to um, leave leave early. Uh, I'm told they they were they were they went to the back of the stand after half time and then left after 70 minutes. Uh, but you know, obviously that could be wrong. But um, I think it was the people in and around them. I know they had some bodyguards, uh, which Wigan uh, didn't allow into the ground. They said, well, you know, wh wh why do you need bodyguards? Uh, so they were outside. Um, and and um, I think it was those advisors who, who told them to leave, and, and they took that advice. Nicole, uh, what, uh, what do you make of that? Do you, do you have similar kind of information on that? Uh, well, your information is very good in terms of the detail, and it. it's very interesting what Kami's saying. Is I certainly wouldn't argue with his knowledge of the, the interest in 
and Rovers from the Qatari end as well. I found out about a Qatari thing from another club. Um, I'd been chasing the story about their interest in Manchester United uh, for some time. Uh, I heard they'd lost interest because the money was too much and the Glazers wouldn't sell. And I knew there was a delegation over uh, talking to a couple of clubs, maybe even more. I was aware of a couple of clubs that um, they were investigating. Uh, Everton possibly more more than, um, than Rovers at the time. I knew about it. Uh, but then the Rovers thing came a little bit more into focus. Um, there were definitely people from the, the delegation in India. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But what always happens is that when you get negotiations like this, that uh, they send their, their agents, their, their middlemen, just for that deniability factor. And I think we're finding out that they're using the deniability factor now, maybe even on both sides a little bit, to um, just to disguise what exactly they're up to. They, they were trying to find out, would Venki sell? And the answer came back, no. Um, which didn't really surprise me because Venkis have put a lot of effort and face into launching rovers in India. So I wasn't totally surprised that the Qataris went away. I've got to say that the Qataris, if they were deadly serious about buying a Premier League club, would have bought a Premier League club by now. I'm afraid they might just be very good at talking uh, rather than actually buying. So it could be you've missed a bullet there because... um, the time was right to buy two or three weeks ago because you could have made whatever changes you wanted. You could have assessed what you've got before the window and you could have turned the club round. I think that chance is gone. I think the time's gone now uh, to buy Rovers. There still might be time to buy another Premier League club if they want to do it. But in several years of covering possible takeovers, both at Blackburn and elsewhere, I get a little bit sceptical about people who hum and haw and don't do it very quickly. So um, I'm losing a little bit of faith in the Qataris as as good owners anyway. Uh, so maybe move on from that. As for the Wigan game, obviously the Rao brothers aren't used to people telling them what to do, no matter how politely. Uh, India is quite a, a class society. And I think they'd be a little bit shocked that the, um, that the natives are restless. And as restless as, as they were on that day. In fact, if they stayed for the second half, the natives got a lot more restless. Um, but I don't know what other factors were in their mind why they left. It was a cold day. People laugh at that. But it also was a cold day. Maybe they thought, oh, enough of this. Let's go. You don't know what's going through people's mind. There's a group of them. Uh, they've probably a lot of separate opinions. But the main one was, let's get out of here. That doesn't send out a very good message to supporters. And it also makes me wonder, why do you come all that way for supposedly major meetings and to watch your team play and leave at half-time. I cannot understand that at all. Mm. You know, you're suggesting that uh, middlemen perhaps went to uh, Pune for discussions. Um, and you're also suggesting that there was no official bid made? I think the question was asked, would you sell? I don't know what figures were mentioned, but I think the question was asked, it's like when you're going back, if you go and try and buy a footballer, you make the first call, is he for sale? If the answer is yes, then you offer a certain amount of money. You don't say, I'm going to offer you £10 million for your player, is he for sale? I think the first question is, is he for sale? And in this particular instance, the answer was no. It would certainly have fitted in with the plans, which was a certain budget for buying a club and throwing a lot of money at players. So from that angle, very, very attractive. But I just wonder a little bit, because if they'd really wanted to do it properly, they would have done it by now, no matter what, because I'm sure 
a major sum of money would have turned Venky's heads and they could have walked away with a perfect excuse. I don't think it got to that stage. Cammy, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Dico. I think um, there was discussions and, and they could have been the middlemen or representatives of the Sheikh. Um, and like like Nico says, I think the question was asked and eventually the answer came back as as no and and they've moved on from from that. Uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll, time will tell uh, in terms of what happens next. Uh, obviously, Alan has been involved in, in these kind of things a lot longer than, than I have and, and, yeah. and we have. So he probably has experience of different takeovers, uh, about you know how Arab takeovers happen, you know uh, there, there's been so much talk in the past of different Arab groups taking over clubs, and it's never really come to anything. So, so, so yeah, I can I can totally understand what you think. Uh, I guess just time will tell whether they end up buying another club or whether it was all talk. And if Alan's right, then then maybe uh, you know we may have avoided a bullet uh, in terms of uh, having some committed uh, owners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just moving on to uh, Steve Keane's contract situation. Uh, in last week's podcast, we were discussing the events uh, surrounding its signing. We were largely speculating at that time. Um, first of all, Cammy, can you just tell us whether there's been any change in terms of the uh, information that you have and uh, uh, whether uh, your speculation uh, might have any uh, grounding? Um, no, I mean, it was just the, the, the as far as that situation is concerned, it's the same as it was last week. Uh, you know, the, the, the club are saying that um, it was something that was pre-agreed, something that was a, a clause in his contract um, that uh, entitled Keane to a pay rise, and it's <clears throat> something that's been going on since the summer, Uh to be honest, there's so much different information coming out. It's difficult to know what to believe at, at the moment. But uh, I would say I don't think it's as straightforward as the statement that uh, the club made. Uh, I think there's a lot more to it. Um, yeah. Alan on, and I'm sure he'll have some insight on that. Yeah, just a bit. Uh, <laughs> 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 the, oh dear. Uh, it was it was one of the one of the most bizarre. Um, Incidents, I think, even in this strange year that we've had under Venkis, what happened was that uh, Steve Keane had been discussing a contract with um, with Venkis from the end of last season, who had originally proposed a very, very long-term contract, but that was no, we don't, shouldn't do that, so that was thrown aside. Then um, after the Arsenal game, round about the time of the, of the Puny trip, it came up again. Uh, that they wanted to get him on a, on a, a contract, a new contract, give him more money and make it longer as some sort of statement of support, which seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, but then it came down to the nitty-gritty of what was actually in the contract. And unbelievably, uh, I still cannot fathom this one out, they did say to him, look, we'll give you more money, but we want to give you less money, quite a lot less money, if we're going to sack you. Now, that is just like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. That's not going to happen. So for about a month or so after that, nothing moved. Um, 
Now, the, the original reason, amongst the original reasons why the, the Roy brothers came over for the Wigan game was to sort out this contract and discuss the budget for January. Now, my understanding is that on the first day of those meetings, things were not going terribly well in terms of, uh, of progress. And then before the Wigan game, which was obviously massive, Steve Keane took it on himself to contact Mrs Desai and say, look, we need to get this contract sorted out straight away. Um, and it was done between those two um, before the Wigan match. So that was the end of that. Now, I didn't realise that at the time. I uh, didn't know about it until the Tuesday afterwards when I was chasing and chasing and putting arms up people's backs and saying, look, I've heard this contract's been signed. Could somebody confirm it? Eventually, I got a confirmation of it that it was done. That was the rough time scale of when it was done. I was also told that he'd got an extension of his contract of a further two years as well as a rise. However, the key point in every contract, again, was the payoff. The payoff was to remain the same figure as before, which I understand is about £800,000. It was to state that figure, and that was that. Now, the story came out. Rovers didn't know what to say about it because very few people knew it had actually been agreed at the very top level, uh, various people were scattered around the globe. Various people just didn't have a clue. And eventually, the club put out a pathetic statement, let's not mince words, uh, that they were responding to media speculation, blah, blah, blah. Now, what sort of support is that for a manager? Very poor, in my opinion. Very, very poor. But it was simply because I think there was only one guy at the club capable of putting a statement out and that really is where Venkis fall down with their communication because there's nobody to tell you what is happening so eventually they put out a statement they are trying to say there's no extension it's a revision I'm still told that within that revision is the facility for two more years on the end of the 18 months on the contract I mean if you think about it why would you sign a new contract uh, if it wasn't for a longer term what would be the point in all that exercise? But the bottom line, in every contract, it could be a 10-year contract if you wanted, the bottom line is what it costs to get rid of you, and that's still the same. Uh, still, it was what it was originally, it's what it is now. The guy's on a bit more money, so in the end, it would appear to be a fuss about not very much. Uh, but it's a chance missed. If they wanted to back him, they should have come out and said, right, he's our man. We've been getting it wrong, but we're going to get it right in future. Stick by us. Instead, very poor statement and probably as many questions as answers now. And if we stay, if we stay on this uh, this issue, um, we discussed this last week on the podcast and uh, Cammy's intuition uh, was that that was the case, uh, as you're suggesting that on the Saturday it was signed between him and Mrs Desai and that it was also including uh, an extension to 2015. Now, at the time, there was some suggestion uh, when uh, when he came up, uh, came down to uh, meet the Rao brothers, Steve King, when he met them, there was some suggestion that the Rao brothers were over uh, looking for a replacement for Steve Keane. Uh, and this was prior to the contract signing, uh, and uh, that uh, the Saturday morning, this is the Wigan game, of course, the Saturday morning uh, meeting between Steve Keane and Mrs Desai um, over the uh, internet or 
telephone uh, preempted this uh, attempt by the Rao brothers to uh, to replace him with another manager. And now we believe that there was uh, uh, a concrete name in the hat uh, and that the Rao brothers met uh, this manager. Um, first of all, uh, Nico, do you, do you have any uh, word on that? I know there are a great deal of rumours about that possibility. I've got to say that for several months that I've been picking up various names of people they would turn to if they sacked Steve Keane. Um, the, the problem Venkis have is that there is one ultimate authority, which is Mrs Desai, but there are so many other people and their friends and their advisors and their friends and their advisors who like to get busy. I mean, I know of managers who've had phone calls and it shouldn't have happened. Uh, who've had phone calls in the past four or five months uh, to sound them out and to say that something might happen. That's no way to run, to run a football club. So it would not surprise me if someone had been spoken to that weekend, um, if they'd been met. It would be remarkably indiscreet. I'd have to say it's who we all think it is. Uh, I would have thought that story would have been out straight away because that particular manager and his agent um, do leak things to the newspapers. So that part of it would surprise me. But look, Steve Keane is no fool. He's identified that Mrs Desai is the person that he should deal with. He's the one, she's the one who makes all the decisions. And um, he has you know, really fostered that relationship since the word go, which is very much a management skill. Uh, and he's seen that she is the, the woman. If you want something done, uh, your best chance is Mrs Desai. So he's dealt with her. The, the brother's to me, have been marginalised a little bit, uh, although I'm sure they would like to change that, uh, but they've been marginalised a little bit. So the, the relationship that matters in the whole club is manager and chair lady. So whatever else they were doing, I think they were probably wasting their time. Cammy, mm. do, yeah. do, uh, do you have any comments on the managerial approach? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, I agree with Alan in terms of uh, Mrs Desai is the the person who makes all the decisions. So anything else going on is pretty much a, uh, a sideshow uh, because she's the one who's going to make any decision. Ultimately, she's the decision maker. Uh, and like Alan said, Steve Keane's uh, found that she's the best person to deal with. And, and um, she's gone on, you know, he's gone on and made a relationship with her. Uh, so I'm sure there were talks with a manager or some managers, but um, until Mrs Desai uh, decides, you know, to sack Keane, everything else is a sideshow, to be honest, because, uh, you know, she's consistently backed Keane um, um, and, and you know, possibly she may be wavering at the moment from, from what I'm told, but again, it's just rumour and speculation at the moment. Uh, but while she backs Steve Keane, he's bulletproof, uh, and anything else going on uh, between other people, etc., is pretty much a, a, a sideshow because uh, she's the one who's going to make the decision and she doesn't bow to pressure, to be honest. Um, she knows her mind. Um, from what I'm told, she's very loyal to people that she employs um, and, and will give them as much opportunity uh, as is feasible. Um, so until she doesn't decide, uh, until she says, right, I'm had enough, I'm sacking Steve Keane, what anybody else says is pretty much irrelevant because uh, 
she'll she'll just not listen to them. She knows her mind, and she won't be swayed by protests, etc. You remember, this is a lady who took on uh, the animal right activist Peter uh, and and kind of beat them, to be honest, in in India. Um, so she's used to protests. She's used to people putting pressure on her, but uh, it, it has very little effect from from what I'm told. Um, and she'll sack Keane or reward Steve Keane. Um, you know when she feels necessary, uh, and I don't think she can be forced in, into into doing that. Uh, thank you very much. Well, we'll move on to uh, the uh, next item, uh, which is company houses, uh, companies house uh, new filing. Uh, we'll just bring in Paul here. Um, Paul, would you would you like to tell us a little bit about the uh, new filing? Uh, yes, certainly. Um... I don't really think it's anything that's terribly significant. Uh, it's the statement of capital which has been filed at Companies House. Now, in the previous accounts, the called-up share cap capital was at around about 134,000 uh, million. Sorry, and um, 134 million. Yeah. Yes, 134 million, roughly speaking. And the the new statement of capital shows that the, the called-up share capital is 140. So that would suggest that Venkis have put in the 10 million that they were obliged to do. Um, and as regards the actual document, um, it details the number of shares which are issued by the company, the types of shares, the value of those shares, etc. Um, but that's really as, as much as it does. Yeah. Uh, was it not the case that they were uh, supposed to put in 15 million? into the Rovers once they'd uh, uh, bought the club? You, you yes, mentioned I believe 10 million. Was, yeah, I believe it was 15 million that they were supposed to put in and it appears that it is only 10 million, yeah. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. Um, do, do you have any uh, comments or questions on, on the previous issue of uh, Steve Keane's contract situation? Um, yes, there was one thing that struck me listening to um, Alan and, and, and Cammy. Uh, over the Qatari bid, we understood that all four members of the family, the two brothers, Mrs. Desai and her husband, had to be in agreement if the club was to be sold, if a bid had been made. Um, but in the discussion we've just heard about uh, the, the contract situation, it seems very clear that um, Mrs. Desai is the person who is making the decisions. So is it that on a day-to-day -day basis, she will decide what is going to happen and the brothers really uh, irrelevant and that it's only in a question of selling the club would they all have to be in agreement. I think on a, an employee basis, which is what Steve Keane is obviously to, to Mrs Desai, then she could make that decision herself. I think also, in addition to that, that there is a bit of a personal relationship there that um, you know she says that she's going to do something for him, which he's stated before, she'll see it through. She'll make sure it gets done. In terms of the possibility of selling the club, I can understand why that would be the the four to zero uh, verdict that was needed because that really is a massive decision. That's not just an employee. That's that's the whole thing. That's the whole shooting match. Uh, and from my information, they were totally split down the middle about what to do um, in terms of should they sell at the right price or or whatever. But when it comes to an individual employee and his contract, 
um, she could do that. And obviously, Steve Keane realised that if there was going to be a split, then the person um, he had to deal with in his own future and his own contract uh, was the top lady. Yeah, I think he's. It's clear Steve's been, um, you know, very, very careful to cultivate the right relationship there. Um, it does make you wonder about the the future management of the club because if if the brothers are coming over looking to um, possibly dis manager or a manager in the future, um, but it just takes a telephone call to change all of that. <laughs> How can there be any serious management of the club now or in the future? I would go back to uh, day one, in fact, maybe even before day one. Um, if you recall the Maradona story, um, that was because of Balaji's connections. He thought Maradona would be a great idea as a manager. And it was, uh, it was again, looking back, and it's probably quite revealing now, it was Mrs Desai who reined that one in and said, no, 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 we don't want that. And she pretty soon after realised that she could work with Steve Keane. Let's not kid ourselves, Steve. Steve's much cheaper than a lot of the alternatives. Even with a contract, he's much cheaper. And that, again, over the course of 12 months, is a quality that's coming out, that they do like to run things on a, um, on a bit of a budget basis uh, where possible. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why Steve's still in the job. And it would also be one of the, one of the reasons why it would be very difficult to replace him or find the right replacement right now, someone who would come along and work the way they work, and work um, inside the numbers that they'd like to work as well. Mm, so therefore, really, the only voices that we should be listening to coming out of Pune are, uh, is that of Mrs Desai. The rest of it is, is pretty irrelevant, and we don't really hear very much from her at all, do we? No, uh, there's a lot of chatter, as I say, all the way around the place, and there has been, and that is one of the reasons why it's very hard working out exactly what's going on at the club. But if you do take a step back and you look at it over a period of time, there is a pattern there. And ultimately, it's Mrs Desai who will um, who'll have the say. Everybody, I mean, Balaji's obviously likes the idea of the football. I think he's probably more committed to the glamour and, and attraction of being a Premier League um, supremo than anybody else. Um, but when it comes down to it, unless he can come up with something absolutely brilliant she agrees with, I think he's going to get slapped down. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, if you look back at Mrs. Desai's statements uh, when we took over, uh, she really hasn't told any lies. She said um, they wanted to do a loan model, you know, leasing players. That's what she said at the very beginning when we bought the club. And she talked about uh, a £5 million budget for transfer windows and using a leasing model. Now, we did that in January, Uh in July, obviously, there were the issues with uh, uh, Jerome Anderson, etc., and that all falling apart. But then, towards the end of the window, the investment was pretty much from the sales that they made. Um, in fact, the net spending was probably nil, or uh, or you know. So it's whatever she said. She's kind of you know. Those are the statements that we need to go back and look at because uh, that's the the basis she bought the club on, and that's the basis she's possibly trying to run the club and and like Alan said these guys like to do things on a budget basis rather than an extravagant basis now I'm sure Balaji would possibly like to spend money but at the end of the day he doesn't control the purse strings and it's Mrs Desai who, who, who does all of that 
Well, if that's the case, um, actually, that's quite a hopeful thing in a way, isn't it? Because if she's more cautious, then that might suggest that perhaps the financial situation at the club is better than, than some people believe. I would think that. Um, the first window, I think they spent more than they wanted to. If you calculate not just the wages, the loan fees, the transfer fees, and significantly the agent fees, that would certainly be more than the five million that was talked about then. The summer was obviously ripped apart with the Phil Jones business and um, the problems with the bank who wanted some of the money back. Um, and that I think that put them in a, a tailspin for a month or more right in the middle of the, the window and it's caused the damage that you're now seeing. If they know anything about football, they would realise that. I think they possibly do realise that they made a mess of it in the summer, they took their eye off the ball and it's now actually going to cost them in January. Um, I mean, I keep hearing the figure that $10 million is going to be made available uh, rather than 5 in January. I really hope that's the case because $10 million might make all the difference. They've got to look at it and say, from a business perspective as much as a football perspective, that if you spend $10 million now, it's going to save you 35 or 40 because that's the price of relegation. So if they have got their heads screwed on that way, then they'll hopefully address it. And that's, that is, I think, why we've got this worry just now about what happens with a manager. Because some sometime in the next few days, they're going to have to say, right, this is what we have to spend, what we're going to spend it on, but above all, who is getting to spend it? Uh, I think if they'd lost yesterday, that would have been someone else. I'm still not 100% sure uh, that it is going to be Steve Keane next week uh, when, when it comes to actually spending the money. Um but I, I've got to say, no matter who's in charge, they do need money. Hopefully it'll be there, uh, and hopefully it's clear rather than the muddled thinking that we suffered with over the summer. Yeah, following on from what uh, Alan said there, I think tomorrow's there's a board meeting, and I think that's going to be a hugely significant one. Um, personally, I think tomorrow there's going to be a decision made as to whether it is going to be Steve Keane who spends that money or somebody else. And I think if Steve Keane's back tomorrow um, and and they decide to go with Steve, then I think that's the manager issue put to bed. Uh, uh, I think he's going to be given then uh, whatever money is available uh, to, to go ahead and spend it in January and and bring in players that he wants to do. Uh, and and like Alan said, it's a question of do they spend 10 million, maybe even 15 million now uh, uh, and try and keep the club up or do they just let it drift and 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 rovers get relegated and they lose 30 35 million um but you know the indications are that there is there is going to be some spending uh in in january and it, that 10 million figure i've been told by a couple of people uh you know that that that's the level that they're looking at uh so but i think tomorrow is going to be the a very important day in terms of you know there is definitely a board meeting happening tomorrow uh, it be interesting to see who's at that board meeting and whether Mrs Desai is possibly involved via a conference call. Uh, but I think possibly the this issue with Steve Keane will come to an head tomorrow and then they'll move on from there in terms of what happens next. In, do they keep Steve and give him the money or do they actually take the decision to, to sack Steve Keane and uh, bring somebody else in? 
uh, I'm told there's a big push on from certain people within the club uh, to, to get Steve Keane removed. Now, whether that's had a big effect on Mrs Desai or not is, is just speculation. But um, I think she has wavered in the last couple of days. But uh, we'll have to see after the result yesterday in terms of how, how they take it forward. Yeah, there was um, some comments on the forum that uh, six Rolls Royces uh, with blacked out windows were seen around Blackburn, which is uh, not an everyday sight. Um, do you have any word on that? I think it was around about Thursday or so. Was that uh, a Venkis uh, uh, group that were coming into Ewood or what was it? Uh, I mean, this something that was started on Twitter on yeah. Thursday night where this people were saying Mrs Desai was uh, at Ewood Park and uh, some fans rushed off uh, to Ewood to find it empty. Uh, I'm you know, 99% sure that Mrs Desai is not in the country and definitely wasn't in the country uh, um, on, on Wednesday or Thursday whenever that, that story broke. Um, so no, she wasn't there. Uh, possibly there could have been the directors uh, or people associated with Venkis in and around the club. But again, maybe not at that uh, um, you know um, that bottom. You know, she wasn't. Um, they weren't. They weren't at Ewood Park at eleven o'clock on Wednesday or Thursday night, as people were claiming. Um, so, so no, I don't think Mrs Desai was at Ewood. Uh, I don't think even the brothers were there. Uh, could have possibly been some of Venky's connections, uh, uh, some of the directors. But again, not at 10 o'clock at night. Maybe they were there a bit earlier. Yeah. Alan, do you have anything to say on that? You hear so many stories these days. It's actually, it is almost comical. It really is almost comical about you know, sightings of people here, there and everywhere. Um, I can understand it because nobody knows. Everybody cares, but nobody knows about what is going on at the, the club. At the moment, it's uh, it is all too mad. The trouble is, and we'll always come back to this. The club is mainly run from India, and there aren't enough people at the ground um, to let everybody know uh, what is actually going on on a daily basis. So we are all in around the dark uh, in terms of what exactly they're thinking and what exactly they're doing, and um, it's all getting a little bit hysterical. I've got to say. Um, I, I, Mrs. Desai has got a massive set of businesses to run in India. I don't think uh, she'd be over here at a time like this uh, when things are in the balance. I think uh, if you'd lost yesterday, it would have been hands-on and a lot of things would have happened even by now. Um, but no, I think their attitude is just to let things tick along and hope it all gets better. Uh, but I think they also do know that they've got to address issues. I mean, the, the, the main benefit of the brothers being over for the Wigan game is I think they realise that what they've got in terms of the team and where they are in terms of the league is a problem. And when it really came to head last week was a very, very poor display at Stoke and a disastrous result at uh, at Cardiff City. And I think those two matches going bottom and being knocked out of a cup are what have actually planted a seed of doubt in Mrs Desai's mind because you know when those results happen and you suddenly realise, hold on, this is going wrong. This is going to cost us money, which is really what they're all about. Let's be fair, they're business people, and it should be what they're all about, I suppose. It's going to cost us money. We've missed out on on a, a semi-final of a competition we could do well in, and we're in real peril 
in the league. So um, for all concerned, yesterday had to be a win. Um, Nico, did you actually manage to get to the Cardiff game, or were you elsewhere? No, no, no. That was uh, I was at a very uh, comfortable distance from that one. Fortunately, yeah. I I can understand why the particular strategy was taken of not risking certain senior players uh, before the Swansea game, not pushing people who've got injuries back into action. Um, I'd maybe take exception with one or two people that were named in the Cardiff side. I don't think they're good enough. Uh, but as a strategy, I can understand what he meant when he was sacrificing the match a little bit for the Swansea game, which is far more important. Obviously, the, the F word that came out, forfeit. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know why he said that. I still don't know exactly what he meant. And I don't know what it means either. And I've got a degree in English. Um, yeah. So, no, it was a silly word. And again, the reaction to it, the overreaction to it, and some of the nonsense people come away with about, you know, we're going to, you know, we've deliberately lost the game and this, that, and the other. He made a mistake. He picked the wrong team, um, and it could have cost him his job. That is severe enough, without beating ourselves up over a word. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a linguist myself, and uh, it strikes me as being. Uh, uh, not just uh, screwing up over team selection, but word selection uh, more than anything. Um, I think uh, he just chose uh, his words rather poorly, shall we say. Definitely. I mean, I, look, I don't think it's more it, than that. No, correct. If you're going to beat somebody up, beat them up for picking the wrong team or whatever, that's not pro- that's not a problem. That's football. Mm. But because somebody makes a slip of the tongue and uses the wrong word, you know, for the hysterical reaction afterwards, mm. It really it, it, it puzzled the life out of me. Yeah. I think if you, if you look at what an awful lot of football managers say, um, their use of English is, is hardly brilliant when they're under the stress of TV interviews, radio interviews and so on. And if you examine it all word by word, very often it doesn't really make any sense anyway. Well, half, half of the Premier League English isn't the first language. Yeah. <laughs> and that probably that includes the Scots. So you've got I mean Roberto Mancini has got a little guy whispering in his ear and telling him what the questions are and giving him a rough idea what his answers. I don't know if you ever hear the the off stage whispers that he's got. So nobody complains about the fact that quite often his sentences don't make any sense whatsoever because he's got a very good team on the top of the league. So I, I don't I think the grammar police need to take a little bit of time off at the moment. Yeah, I think you're quite right there. Quite right. Yeah. Um, the Cardiff game itself, uh, did anybody actually watch the game? Uh, Paul, Cammy? No, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. No. I, I spoke to a friend of mine who went to the match, um, yeah. a, a scout for another club. He did say it was absolutely appalling after the first 20 minutes that um, nobody seemed to know what they were doing and some of the players out there just went up to it. I, I mean, I've only seen brief highlights and it seemed to be going okay until... Montgomery's Pedersen get robbed and when you go behind in a game like that and it's a scratch team it's asking an awful lot so no there's no doubt he, he picked it, it it went off on him he picked the wrong side and the gamble failed um, if you were putting the gamble together with a Swansea match was it a double ticket was it you know make sure that you win the Swansea game um, by, by sacrificing in the Cardiff City game then yet yeah, that worked but in an ideal world you'd have both Mm-hmm. And uh, that brings us on nicely to the Swansea game. Uh, Nico, you were at uh, Manchester City versus Norwich, I believe. 
yes. um, enjoying a, a veritable festival of football. Um, I think Paul and Cammy were enjoying a different festival uh, at uh, Ewa Park. Uh, Cammy, what did you make of the match? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously it's always great to get a win because it's been such a long time since we've won a game. Uh, I was on quite a, a, quite a high after the game. Uh, I thought the plan A yesterday worked uh, to, to some extent. Uh, it was a brilliant performance. Uh, Swansea, uh, I thought... They, they passed the ball quite well and looked pretty, uh, but really they didn't create too many chances or create too much of a greater threat. In fact, um, at both times when they scored, I was feeling quite comfortable. I was like, saying, oh, you know, we're well on top here, and and I didn't expect them to get a goal, and <laughs> and, and they went and scored twice uh, just as I was getting comfortable. But I thought, obviously, Yakubu, absolutely brilliant performance as a striker. Uh, he showed. Uh, what an out and out goal scorer he is! Uh, you know he doesn't run around all over the pitch, uh, a la Roberts does. But what he does do is he gets into the right place, right right time, give him a chance. He puts it away. It was a bit of a freak because he had five chances yesterday. He scored all five. One was ruled off offside. Uh, and you know it's, it's very rare that you see a striker take all chances, but um, I thought he he was superb in terms of getting into goal scoring opportunities. Uh, you know, reading where a volley was going to go or how Samba was going to put it back across the goal. So so he did well. Um, I thought Vukcevic when he came on showed some really really promising uh, touches. Uh, he was involved in two of the goals uh, at two one. He's the one who volleyed it back across. Uh, and Yakuba got on the end of it and he got the penalty. Uh, I thought his work rate was quite good in terms of uh, helping out uh, um, in a defensive sense. Uh, so he did well. Um, so, yeah, generally it was very, very positive um, in terms of Steve Keane's plan here definitely worked. Uh, and three massive points. Yeah. How was uh, the back four yesterday? Uh, the back four is still, unfortunately, not not where I'd want it to be, to be honest. Uh, I've been banging on about it since pre-season. Yeah. Uh, um, I think we do back off too far at times. Uh, I think teams uh, find spaces in dangerous areas where, where they shouldn't be able to, to, to do. And when you have Pedersen and Dunn playing as your central midfielders, uh, they're not, they, they don't give the defence any cover. Uh, so as a defensive unit, not just the defenders, but the people in front of them, I think we're we're not quite there. Uh, well, we're not there. You know, we need to work on that. But that's something that I've been saying since July. Uh, I think we we back off too far. We we don't cover dangerous areas, uh, and we leave space which teams can exploit. Uh, so uh, defensively, no, that those concerns still still remain, unfortunately. Paul, what did you make of it? Uh, yeah, I, uh, well, you've taken virtually every word that I was going to use because I, I agree entirely with what you've said, Cammy. Um, like you, there were a couple of occasions during the game where I began to sit back and relax and think, yeah, this is going to be OK. And then up pops Swansea and I'm thinking if they get another one, are, they gonna, are we going to collapse, you know? Um, so it. The, I think our win was very, very much down to Yukubu and the fact that he really took his chances in the way that, you know, a good striker does. And uh, I think we've got to go all the way back to Simon Garner for the last time somebody scored four for Rovers. 
Is that would that be right? Yeah, 1986. I'm reliably informed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got five that day, didn't five. he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed watching Swansea. Actually, um, I thought they played some some neat football. I th- I felt that they everybody knew where their teammates were supposed to be and how they could get rid of the ball if they needed to. Um, having said that, I didn't feel that Swansea carried very much threat. And I think that this is why um, possibly they will struggle in the second half of the season. If they get a few games go against them, they have a few few losses and a bit of uh, a lack of confidence that we may see them struggle later on in the season. Um, the other thing that I was left wondering about after the game was that Rovers in many ways don't seem to carry a lot of threat. But yet yesterday we just conjured up four goals out of almost nowhere and we, we and we score a lot of goals but we don't seem to carry any great threat to, to teams during a game and that just really puzzles me and I know it puzzles a few other people yeah I think the players we've got and they obviously work on certain routines attacking routines and when it comes off we just conjure up a chance and bang goal and uh, and you know we are scoring uh, virtually well I think every game virtually we're scoring goals uh um, and and sometimes does they just come out of nothing? But I think it's because they work on certain set routines that they have, and and when it when it comes off, it, it results in a chance or a goal. And and yeah, I I know what you're saying. It's puzzling. There's some sides who create chance after chance and look threatening throughout a game, whereas with with Rovers, there's periods of of play where we don't have possession or we pass the ball around and don't look like we're going anywhere and suddenly suddenly bang 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 put something together goal uh, so uh, I've wondered that myself at times but I think it's down to trading methods I think they're working on certain routine and when it comes off it it, it, it results in a chance or a goal so are we saying we have a master tactician who's directing the players at the moment then <laughs> I don't I mean, I don't know, master tactician or, you know, whatever, but I think there seems to be something happening where, in an attacking sense, when things do come off, the players know what they're doing uh, when they're going forward, and yeah. that results in a chance or a goal. Uh, um, you know, we have to give Keane a little bit of credit yesterday. Uh, you know, he's the one who brought Yakubu in. Um, and, you know, I know we get... Um, um, you know, we give him a lot of stick and deservedly so. Uh, but um, you know, he did bring Yakubu in. Now, whether that was by luck or, or it was a last-minute panic signing, whatever, you know, he did bring in uh, Yakubu, and the guy scored ten goals now. Uh, and you have to give credit where a little bit of credit is due, I think. Yeah, I quite agree, Cammy. And I think you know, Yakubu certainly has proved to be a, a really good signing for us this season. Um, and I suppose, really, when we, if you think about all these goals that we're scoring, if we could just get the defence tightened up so that we were conceding only one or hopefully none a game, then we may start to see some of the, the progress on the pitch, which we desperately need. Yeah, I agree. You know, the defence uh, needs sorting, but whether tweaking the defence then uh, affects the attacking floor floor of the game is is you know is is that getting that balance right I think uh, particularly uh, away from home uh, where you know we are far too open at times. 
I think it's significant yesterday, if you just look at the team sheet, you've got four defenders and six attackers. I think that makes all the difference in the world. That's, I mean, if, if it's a game you want to win, you, the midfield, to me, are all progressive players. That, that's why your defence is wide open yes. when you play like that. It's not even it's not even tactics, it's just personnel. I mean, Dunny and uh, Morton Graham's person are not defensive-minded players. You've got, you know, Rashinas and Farmikas and all these guys, they, they're not defensive players either. So, they're, they're basically, that that was a side pick yesterday. That's probably all you had. But that was a side pick to score goals yesterday. And um, that's going to be the way of it. You've got Nzonzi there when he plays, when he's not suspended or whatever, that, that gives you a, of a more of a 5-5 split in terms of an extra defender. Um, but um, I think when you look at that, when I saw that starting lineup yesterday, I, I did think that, that, that looked like goals to me, but also the risk of losing them as well. And it's... It, that's going to have. That's not a bad approach to get yourself out of trouble because draws aren't really much good at this moment in the time. You need to be winning games. I think if you had, um, if you went with that approach in the six pointers, certainly at home you'd have a very fair chance of winning matches. Yeah, no, I I agree. Uh, I think we've got uh, West Brom and Bolton as the next two home games, and we've we've re, re, the situation we're in. We've just got to go for it. Um, draws are no use in those games. Um, We've got to win those home games um, and 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 take it on from there because um, uh, you know we've just got to be positive and just go for it. Yeah, I think it would be great to get two wins out of those games, but if we have to draw one, I'd settle for drawing with West Brom if we can beat Bolton. Uh, I think that's the really important one that we do beat Bolton. Yeah, yeah, definitely because uh, they're in and around us. Um, uh, you know, if we can get. Four points from those games. Uh, well, if, if, if you win at Sunderland next week, you go above Sunderland. I would think, as long as the Sun, Sunderland don't win today, you can actually go above Sunderland. I don't see any reason to be scared of playing Sunderland away from home, even with an attacking formation. I don't. That that wouldn't worry me because I don't think they're anything special at all. No, I would. Um, I'd look on that game as a match you'd fancy yourself self to winning. Yeah. Isn't the, the new manager factor going to be a big thing for Sunderland? Is it not going to be the start of the you know the usual honeymoon period? No, I, I don't think they can score goals. That's why Steve Bruce lost his job because he, he lost his strikers. I don't think they've got goals in them. I'm sure the fans will be up for that game and they'll be charging round. But I, I don't see who gets the goals on that side. Um, no, I, I would be quite optimistic in the result at Sunderland next weekend. Yeah, I mean if we can keep it tight. Uh, and then and that's a big if a big if <laughs> there's a miracle this, and we get our defences sorted out if you can keep it tight uh, well there's two ways to approach it either go for it and put them under a lot of pressure and you know if we score three goals against them maybe they haven't got the striking power uh, to, to come back and get uh, three or four uh, so it's it, it, I mean it's well, interesting you are capable of scoring goals in away games I mean the Stoke game last week well it was a, a shocker defensively how many chances did you make in that game? You made a whole lot because again, you've got um, you've got people on the side. They've got a little bit of flair at times, and they know where the goal is. So while that was a you know an awful result and a performance, there was actually in the middle of it all there, there was a sign that you you know you were capable of putting chances together. I know the manager got ridiculed for it, and I must admit I thought at the time, what are you saying? But when you actually look back at it a few days later, you think, well, hold on, you know, he's right. There were an awful lot of shots flying in there. And um, it's not easy to make chances at Stoke, but he certainly made a few that day. But it would not worry me going to Sunderland next weekend. In fact, I would say that uh, that's a game you could win. 
Well, that would be fabulous, wouldn't it? I mean, if if Sunderland and Wolves was a draw today, uh, Wolves are at Old Trafford next weekend. And if Rovers could get a win at Sunderland, the league position would just look so different. It would be be wonderful. Oh, yes. That, that's why, the, you know, some of the dramas that are going on just now, I think, are overblown because it doesn't take that much. There, there, this, there's probably 10, 11 teams are going to be in a relegation fight because there's an awful lot of ordinary teams about. I saw Norwich yesterday. There's no way in the world that you're not better than Norwich. Um, poor old Wigan are in real trouble. Uh, so this, the newly promoted teams will sag as well. You're quite right with that. So, no, as long as you keep your heads and you spend wisely in January, there's no reason to think this is uh, going to be a season of despair. Wait a minute, we're having some positivity on the podcast. This is not a lot. It's a bit of reality. I mean, there's, there's so many things wrong, but the great thing that strikes me about all the teams down the bottom, it's the same with Bolton, um, that uh, no, no matter how bad things are just now, you look above you and you think, hold on a second, these teams aren't very good. No, it's not a hopeless case. If you lost yesterday, it would probably have been a hopeless case because it's too far. But you're in contention. There's 14 games gone. But above all, there's some rubbish about. Yeah, I think just to bring us back to earth, uh, we <laughs> haven't kept a clean sheet since April. Uh, that's what, seven, nearly seven months, oh, over seven months, my goodness. And we're shipping over two goals a game at the moment. Um, but I, I think, uh, as we're, we're discussing now, um, below about seventh, eighth place, um, there's no one actually pulling away. What, 15 points round about that? Um, the, there, there, isn't, uh, there isn't this distribution of points. Uh, everything's up towards the top end. And uh, what, 15 points? We're only about five, five points off that now. Uh, even... Uh, from bottom to Europe, uh, uh, well, steady, so the, steady. The, edge of, <laughs> the edge of Europe uh, is 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 less than uh, getting from what middle of the table to uh, to to fifth to hitting that uh, Champions League spot on fourth. Yeah, you're starting uh, to sound like the now. <laughs> no, the, what, what I'm saying is I'm actually backing up the fact that uh, the, there's such a, um, a kind of a watershed, if you will. Uh, between the top teams and the rest, um, the uh, uh, the amount of effort it would take to to get up into the middle of the table is not great if you're well organised, if you're not shipping two goals a game, uh, if you can keep if you can keep the occasional clean sheet uh, and score the odd goal or two. So yeah, yeah, I, th- uh, I think I, I, I see where you're coming from. When I would um, say it's the opposite, you need to get your 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 organisation right, your defensive side right. And uh, uh, obviously you go for the wins, uh, three points uh, every three or four games is better than uh, uh, getting a couple of draws here and there. Um, so, yeah, attack and be positive, but it has to be on uh, on a, a, a stable base. And uh, Rovers this season, and uh, as far as I've seen last last season, just do not have that. And, yeah, I agree. Uh, I can see where you're coming from when, um, I mean, if you look at the table, Liverpool are on in seventh place with 23 points and Everton Mm. are eighth with 16. And then it goes 16 down to 10 for Rovers in 18th. So, yeah, yeah, actually what it goes to show is that a a club with 
good investment in the right players and with the right manager could actually make progress very rapidly the way the Premier League is set up at the moment. Yeah, we, we should be round about the seventh, eighth position. I mean, with the squad we've got and uh, the, the amount of Premiership experience we've got in, in the club, or <laughs> used to have, uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't think you're, you're glaringly short in certain positions. We just said that you didn't really have a much of a. I mean, well, Samba's back yesterday, but when Samba's yeah. out, you've, you, the, the back four is you know at risk. You don't have a have a right back, um, a genuine right back. You don't have a midfield player of the Jermaine Jones type, and you don't have any competition cover. For Yakubu at the moment, those are the three areas that the manager said he wants to strengthen, and I think they yeah. are, definitely are the three problem positions. If you could do something about that, you, I don't think you're going to yeah, get rid of it. If thing, you do that, I don't, I don't think you go down. No, I'm, there's no reason why we can't stay up at all uh, as long as we approach it right. And uh, I think uh, if, if we move on to the protest now, I, th- I think that's the, the core of. Uh, of the protests, uh, the fact that so many people uh, look at the record of uh, the manager, uh, look at the way the team is set up on a week-to-week basis. Um, in order to get out of this situation, uh, we need a good, strong manager with Premier League experience. Um, Cammy, um, Paul, you were both at the match yesterday. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about the protest for the Swansea game please everyone was wearing um, yellow I guess yes there was uh, there were quite a number of people wearing yellow of, of one sort or another um, I understood that over a thousand of these uh, protest t-shirts have been sold but I, I have to say I didn't see a thousand people wearing them um, but there was black and yellow you know visible throughout the ground um, the keen out chance started from the Darwin end before we'd kicked off um, and uh, there, there was quite a lot of chanting through the first, what, 15 to 20 minutes, I suppose. Um, obviously, uh, once Rovers went ahead, that started to tail off a little, but I think it was quite clear that a very large proportion of the crowd were making it clear that they do not support the manager and they think he should be replaced and this was really shown most of all when, um, whenever Rovers scored, because there would be, you know, obviously a lot of celebration for the goal, but immediately afterwards there was chanting against the manager. There was a rather bizarre situation where Yakubu, after his first goal, went over to high five Steve Keane and was booed. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. Um, and. I suppose that's really just an example of the the crowd trying to show that they do not support the manager. They do not want him at the club. Hmm. Uh, I'll I'll ask Nico for a comment on that in a moment. But um, uh, just before we go go there, um, the aftermatch protests, what what happened there? Um, I'm afraid I left after once uh, Robbo had been to the Blackburn end and applauded everybody uh, we left so I don't there were down on the uh, the area between the seating and the edge of the pitch I could see about 20 or 30 people who were getting out the the keen out banners and were chanting for keen to leave um, 
it looked to me like it was actually quite a small number staying behind, but I don't know. Uh, but I don't think the fact that it was possibly a small number stayed behind should deflect from the fact that there were an awful lot of people all around the ground calling for Steve Keane to, to leave. There's no doubt in my mind, maybe as much as a third of the crowd were calling for him to leave. Yeah. yeah. Coming? I, I agree. Uh, I think there was a lot of chanting throughout the game, uh, uh, particularly when we scored goals. And straight after that, there was some uh, strong chanting there. Uh, and then after the game, uh, I, I stayed for five or ten minutes and there were, um, you know, there were to begin with probably five or six hundred people uh, in the Blackburn end uh, at the front. Um, and then that dwindled down to uh, maybe four, three or four hundred. It was hard to judge because um, they were quite spread out towards the back. So, so there were a significant amount of people uh, in terms of uh, during the game, um, chanting Keen out and booing uh, Yakubu. Or well, they weren't booing Yakubu. I think they were more booing Keen for for coming out and stepping on the pitch and waving his hands around, uh, a bit like what happened at Wigan. Um, and um, and then after the game, there were you know about six seven hundred people, which dwindled down to maybe three three or four hundred. Um, and then um, you know. The, the yellow shirts, they were visible, but again, like Paul, I don't think there were a thousand yellow shirts, but uh, there were lots of people with y- yellow scarves or yellow hats or, or whatever, and it was definitely visible throughout the ground uh, that people had these uh, yellow shirts on. Yeah, I, I think... Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, Paul, please go ahead. Uh, sorry, yes, I mean... Uh... I don't like I said, I don't know how many people did stay behind to protest. But as I was leaving, it looked like only 50 or 60 were beginning to gather. There may well have been a a lot more, um, but I can only, you know, say what I saw and what I heard, basically. Do you think it do you think it helps? Uh, Do I think it helps? Um, I would much rather not see protest during the game. But I feel and I, I have to say I didn't protest during the game yesterday when there have been other matches where I have been up on my feet hurling abuse at the manager. Um, the, the problem is that we've reached a situation where the majority of the fans do not trust the manager. Probably the majority of the fans do not have much faith in our ownership. We've tried protests before games. We've tried marches. We've tried sit-ins after games. The one thing that usually gets a manager out is when the protest takes place during the game. And this is what we saw with Bruce at Sunderland, isn't it? Um, but I, don't, I think you're probably right. It doesn't help the team, which is why it is, there's been so much effort to focus on supporting the team and differentiating that from the the feeling against Steve Keane. That's interesting. I mean, I, I went to the Wigan game uh, and I thought it definitely got to the team that day. I didn't go to Swansea yesterday, but I was at the Wigan match and I thought second half it definitely got to the team. I think you could see by the reaction when they scored and at the end of the game, um, the fans were the last thing in their mind. And I think that's, that's a, a pity. It really is. I, I know... Yeah all the frustration. I can understand the um, 
upset that's going on at the moment. Uh, you know, there's there's definitely grounds for it. Uh, but I just would never, when I supported my team, ever go into a game saying I wanted them to lose, which I hear in so many places just now. And during the game, I don't think I can ever remember booing my team or turning on them. The trouble is, I think, is that people are organising things just now and they feel that having organised something in advance, they've got to do something about it when they get there. You know, the banners are there. No matter what the result, we've got to get our banner out. And I just think, you know, maybe need to stop and think at times during the game. Yeah, OK, not a problem after the match. Before the match, I don't think that helps set the tone. We had the aeroplane incident, obviously, uh, during the match as well. I don't think it helps. I really don't think, because ultimately, if it costs you the game, everybody loses. You might not get the result you want in terms of a manager being sacked or the owners leaving, but you've lost the game. And if you lose too many more games, you're going to get relegated. So it's very hard. I don't know what the solution is, but I do not like uh, protests during the match. And I'd have to say, at the end of the match yesterday, most of the papers who I've, that I've read this morning and the people talking on the television all seem to come to the same conclusion. They don't quite get it. Why do you have a protest after a match when you've won? Now, I know it's deep-seated, uh, but I do think you know, maybe at times you cut them a bit of slack and you say, all right, then you've won this game. You've not, you know, we're not, we don't believe in you yet. You've got a lot of ground to make up, but um, to have protests after a match like that, I don't know. It just it it strikes me as bandwagon jumping, and I don't think I really don't think it helps. I do understand exactly what uh, you're saying there, Alan. And I mean, one of the remarks I've been making in recent weeks is I think that the most important protest, the most effective one, is what I call a, an organic protest. I mean, when we went four nil down to City, people all around the ground who were up on their feet, people in the Jack Walker stand were up on their feet, you know, protesting at what they could see happening in front of them. It wasn't planned. It just no. happened. And and I think those are the those are the real protests, aren't they? Yeah, um, no, I, I, would, I would say that the spot on, that was a genuine, spontaneous keyword uh, protest mm. that day. But it just seems to be ingrained with some people right now. They want to be protesters. I don't know whether they've seen this at Man United or Liverpool and, you know, look, there's no doubt that fans have been disenfranchised from football clubs in the last few years. And I can understand that, but I don't think that's Blackburn Rovers. I've never seen this at Blackburn Rovers before. And I just don't think, you, look, you've got enough things against you without adding to the problem. I, I think there's a core group of about 1,000 protesters. They're pretty much on, on the Facebook group. Um, and... Um, then there's the the rest of the fans uh, who aren't happy with Steve Keane, you know, and 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 aren't happy with the way the things are going at the club uh, with regards to the ownership and um, how the clubs are being run. Um, what's happening here is, uh, you know, you've got this group of thousand people, and I completely agree. You know, they have the right to protest and have no problems with with them doing. I think what Glenn Mullen's done uh, in terms of trying to organise a peaceful protest is uh, is is fine, you know, is is to be admired. Uh, but I think there's this... I just started to see on the forums uh, yesterday where some of the people who were protesting were coming on and trying to belittle some of the fans for enjoying a win. You know, they, they, were, they were coming on saying, oh, well, everything's OK, we've won a game, you know, uh, why aren't people protesting? And 
and for me, that's the tipping point. I go to watch a football. I love Rovers as much as the people who are protesting love Rovers. Uh, but, you know, I shouldn't have to feel guilty about uh, uh, enjoying a win. You know, what's the point of sporting a team if we can't enjoy uh, a win? And regardless of feelings for the manager, uh, I, I've got to go out and, and respect the players. People like Gail GV, um, you know, Samba, you know, they were putting their bodies on the line yesterday in the second half and giving it 110%. And, you know, regardless of feelings for Steve Keane or whatever, I just got to respect that and say, well, you know, if they're going out there and putting everything on the line uh, to, try, to try and get a win. So, you know, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm supporting those players, if nothing else. And then to come on message boards afterwards and start reading comments from people saying, trying to make those fans who actually enjoyed the match and enjoyed winning a game, trying to make them feel guilty or trying to suggest that they're not proper fans. I just can't agree with that. Uh, I, I agree with protests, etc. Uh, everyone has that right. And, you know, people who, we're not stupid, you know, people who went away yesterday having enjoyed the game and enjoyed winning the game, that didn't get rid of the issues. You know, it was just a matter that, OK, we won a game and, and you know, we were concentrating on the football side of things, what happened on the pitch. And the other issues regarding Keane and the owners, they're still there. But, you know, for God's sake, you, you've got to enjoy winning a football match. Well, I do anyway, and I, and I won't feel guilty for that. And there were people on my Twitter feed... Yeah, I, I quite agree. Yeah, um, there were people on my Twitter feed or... I'm still... Uh, messaging me, trying to say, well, wh- wh- why didn't you protest? Or why are you coming out and saying that you enjoy the win? Well, I'm a fan. I, of course I'm going to enjoy a football match. And if we won, I'm going to enjoy it. That hasn't got rid of the issues. You know, they're still there. And that's separate from, from what happens on the pitch, for me anyway. Um, and, and I know there were a lot of other fans who felt the same way, but there are people out there who are trying to belittle those fans for, for enjoying a football match. And to me, that's just an alien concept. Yeah, I quite agree. Um, I still feel we need to change the manager. I would still like to see the ownership change. But yesterday, um, well, no, this morning, I can now see a little glimmer of hope that maybe at around 10 to 10.30 on the 21st of December, we could move out of the bottom three. And so I'm I'm feeling a, a lot happier, really, about the whole situation for the time being. Yeah, and, you know, that, that, that that's what it's, the game's all about. You go there to, to watch your team. If they win, you've got to be happy with that. And then, you know, that doesn't mean that the issues have gone away or, you know, you know what's happening with the club uh, or what's happening with Keane or your sporting Keane. Those those issues are still there and they're very, very relevant. And, uh, you know, there's going to be stuff, you know, happening over the next six, eight months, which, which is hugely worrying about uh, the direction the club's going in. But, you know, you've got to enjoy the games. Surely you've got to enjoy a win. You know, I just can't understand that concept. That's just me personally. I just can't understand the concept of people having a go at fans for, for enjoying a win. Yeah. Um, another aspect is that uh, I think we've uh, discussed this briefly in previous podcasts that uh, we have to take a long term view here. Um, we really need every single point that we can muster. Um, irrespective of whether Steve Keane stays for another week, another month or for the rest of the season. Uh, it's absolutely necess- necessary that we get as many points as possible up on the board uh, to give us a, a chance of staying in, in this league. I, I agree. Uh, you know, the long term is yeah. we have to try and stay in the Premier League. And if we don't, we're in the Championship and that's going to bring issues. Um, but, you know, um, 
that there's there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there um and i was past some yesterday but and, and asked why well, why are we not running reports on this but without concourse you know you i've looked at every single conspiracy theory there is and i've done a lot of research on a whole host of issues and nothing but nothing has come back to suggest some of these conspiracy theories are, are true um I, I know alan have you have you looked have you been past any of these i know the rumors and there's all sorts i've been past and i've looked at every single one of them and done so many uh so much research in into the areas and you know there's some stuff that checks out but you know most of it is is, is not coming back as true no it's it goes from the laughable to the libelous some of the stuff that's flying around right now i mean people would like to glamorize what's happening at a football club i think um it's a it's a fiction writer's dream you know you've got indian chicken owners called venkies you've got some international conspiracy involving a football agency called Kentaro. You know, it's like, a, it's like a very poor Austin Powers movie. You know, it's um, it's it's just, no, it's too far-fetched. The trouble is what's happened for me is that um, the owners wanted to buy a club relatively cheaply. They found an agency who would given them a great idea of how they could run it by signing young players and making a profit on them, as well as doing well in the Premier League. And um, it's not worked. It's as simple as that. It's not work. They had a business plan that didn't work. If that happens in any other line of business, um, you know, you abandon ship and you try something else. Trouble is in football, you've got to stick at it and you've got to find a better plan. And that's really where they've been floundering. And um, it's obviously costing them more than they imagined. And it's going to cost them more if they spend money in January. Um, it's just not worked. And there's there's been splits between the the owners and their advisors as a result from quite early on in the play because I don't think they really sat down and worked it out properly. And um, as I say, when it goes wrong in football, the knock-on effect is pretty severe. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll just give you an example. I spent most of last week chasing up uh, a rumour, a story that I was passed that uh, Venkis were the front for for something else that there yes is. I know yes uh, we've got to be very careful with that one but that's just no just, no I, I just just silly for once. yeah and and I spent the whole of last week chasing that talking to the FA talking to the Premier League seeing documentation that was submitted to the FA in terms of a fit and proper test and the the checks that the FA had done and a whole host I spent the whole week chasing that up and at the end I've come down and and found nothing to say that it's a front for something or whatever. It's a crazy rumour. And some of that is really libelous stuff that was posted. as And people read that and take it as fact. And I spent the whole of last week che- checking just that one rumour out and, and nothing checks out. And and, and it's that, that kind of information which is uh, out there uh, and, and people reading it and taking it as fact. And, and a lot of it is just not true. No, sometimes the... The simplest answer is actually the right answer, and I, and I think I hope I put it in a nutshell there that they did they had an idea and it's just not worked out. Yeah. You know, it would be like if, if they launched a, a turkey burger in India or something like that, and nobody wanted it, they would just forget that idea. Yeah, not, they might have lost a few quid on it, and they would go do something else. You can't do that in football. If you buy a club and your original plan doesn't work out, you've got to have another plan, and I don't think they have anybody they can turn to right now that that can find a way out of the, the fog here 
uh, without one simple solution, and that is spend <coughs> some money. That the money you didn't spend in, in the summer has now got to be spent in January, and it's got to be spent wisely, and it's got to be spent at the start of the month and not at the end of the month. I have no faith that they know how to do that because of past events. I don't know how, if they have an idea how to actually sign players or how to go about it, how to negotiate and how to sell the idea into joining Blackburn Rovers when they're currently in the bottom three. That is very hard for an expert to do. But for some of the novices that we've got in charge at the moment, it's um, it's a bit frightening. Just like to point out that uh, the uh, information being discussed by Kami has not been posted or discussed uh, in any shape or form on BRFCS. Um, I think uh, that's correct, isn't it, Cammy? It is, yes, yes. Yeah, good, good. Uh, now, uh, if we move on to transfers, um, transfer window coming up in January. Um, last Thursday, uh, Steve Keane uh, met Venki's representative, Venice Rao, and also uh, he met... Uh, Simon Hunt, the uh, sporting director, uh, to discuss plans for the transfer window. Uh, now, uh, last time we, we spoke to Nico um, was uh, at the end of the summer transfer window. And uh, if we could just have a, a brief review of the summer activity before you uh, tell us what you think uh, the uh, transfer budget is going to be and uh, any ideas on uh, outgoings and targets. So, uh, Nico, uh, would you like to uh, lead off with uh, a review of the summer activity, please? Yeah, you forget how busy the summer was. Um, mm. obviously, obviously, Phil Jones happened, uh, which we didn't think was going to come as quite as quickly as that. He eventually got good money for him, um, which I think the owner should be applauded for, for actually standing up. But after that, to me, rather than transferring individuals, it was the transfer budget that became the issue. Uh, when the bank wanted the money back at a time when they had pledged to the manager that he would get um, the money he wanted plus any cash from sales. So the pot should have been big. They were chasing all sorts of interesting names, some pretty good ones. Uh, but when the bank intervened, they got the huff. And after that, really, it was a mess. Uh, Kalinich had to go to bring in money to bring in some of the, the bargain buys that have been signed. And it was all done pretty much in a hurry. Funnily enough, uh, while Petrovic and Vukovic haven't worked out and Jordan Slew was bought for the future, you would have to say that Yakubu's been incredible value for money, but that just shows there is no logic in the transfer market because there's no way in the world that Yakubu was a first choice. He might have been fifth or sixth choice, and he didn't come until the very last day, and it's worked out. I think it's worked out far better than anybody could have expected. The lad Ibisevic was, was the choice. Uh, El Hamdawi was being watched by the manager just a couple of days before the window shut. Couldn't do deals on either for various reasons. So, as I say, we'd all like to sit down and be perfectly mathematical and scientific and say, oh, that was a good signing, that wasn't, that was well planned. The most accidental signing of them all was Yakubu, and he's the biggest success. He's the reason why you still got a chance of surviving this season as the fellas goals. So that just tells you that we could say right now who the best right-back to sign would be, how the best midfield player could possibly be landed would be, and how the best support striker uh, could be signed. We'd probably be right in our way, but it's what happens in that month of January when you've got to be on your toes and reacting. And the most 
unexpected can happen. Um, look, it, it doesn't just happen at Blackburn Rovers. I look back at Eric Cantona. Manchester United didn't even know he was available. Leeds United tried to get Dennis Irwin. Fergie asked for Cantona on a swap. Couldn't believe he got Cantona and the rest is history. So, yeah, transfers are not an exact science. Things can happen out of nowhere and you can sign a player you never thought it was going to be any good and he's an absolute genius for you. You can spend a lot of money on somebody and he's hopeless. So, bottom line, I think going into January is as long as you know the positions you want and as long as you've got the money uh, and you know how to do the deals, you've got a fighting chance and you've probably got an edge on some other clubs at the bottom of the table who don't have any money whatsoever. Yeah. You were suggesting uh, five to ten million uh, might be in the pot. Ten, I would hope. Yeah, yeah. And uh, full-back, right full-back, centre midfield and uh, striker. Those are the three main positions, are they? I would have said a young Michel Salgado, a Jermaine Jones type, yeah. and probably a striker who could... Uh, I mean, Yakuba's been great and all the rest of it, but is he going to last the season? Somebody else who could come in and play on his own up front or with Yakubu. Goodwill is not measured up just yet. Jordan Slew is far too young. Jason Roberts does look as if he's coming towards the end. So you are relying very heavily on the yak. And that's not something you'd want to do. I mean, let's not forget, he was loaned to Leicester by Everton. Didn't do very well at Leicester. And nobody wanted him in the summer. He was offered everywhere. And it was only because... His agent, Pini Zahavi, was pals with some people at Blackburn. That, that deal actually happened. So, uh, well, we might criticise agents. You, you, probably one agent did you a favour there because he's come in and he's notched. So um, that's how it works. Mm, yeah. um, we were after Ibisevic uh, um, last uh, August, uh, but that didn't go through because of an injury. Uh, yeah. ha- has that one been uh, shelved for the January window? Is that still on? I think it's still very much on, uh, but yeah. whether the player's 100% fit is another matter. I've seen him fourth for his club and country lately, and I've got to say he's not my cup of tea. Not that that matters very much, but he doesn't look great to me. Uh, mm. But I do know that they are very interested in signing him. I wouldn't be surprised if he tried to beat the price down, uh, maybe even try and take him on loan uh, and, and cut a corner that way and, and pay his wages in full. Uh, but I do think he's a realistic target. I know Andy Johnson was a realistic target, but I don't think he wants to come north, despite somebody saying today Sunderlander after him. I understand he wants to stay in the London area. Um, so after that, it's that type of player. I think it's a striker who knows his way about and who will score goals. Might not necessarily have to start every week, but would be a player you could turn to and trust in the second half of the season when you're going to need that type of character. Um, so somebody like that for up front would probably do the job. Midfield's going to be very hard for me. Um, there's not many people will have the impact that Jermaine Jones had, and I don't know who that's going to be. Right back, you would be able, surely, to find somebody for right back. But um, we shall see. But as I say, but I, but I know there is a certain vagueness about what they're doing just now, because even as we speak, ridiculously, they don't know yeah. exactly what the figure is now whether that's because Venkis haven't got their act together or possibly in the last week or so they've not wanted to say because they weren't sure whether they wanted um, the manager to spend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're suggesting a Jermaine Jones type. Um, is Jermaine Jones uh, available at the moment? He's in the Schalke side and doing very well. He was only really available last 
second half of the season mm-hmm. because he'd fallen out with the coach. Uh, yeah. He would have stayed. He would have stayed. In fact, I've, I've found out quite recently there was a permanent deal that was being pushed in some quarters, but they didn't want to spend four or five million on a fee and big wages because of his age. On reflection, that was probably a mistake. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he was desperate to to, to come back. Uh, I think his wife is still living it, uh, in in Cheshire. Uh, she really liked like uh, like living in the UK, and his kids are at school there. Uh, he was desperate to come back, but as Alan says, uh, the fee issue. They didn't want to spend money, and and on reflection, that was a a major cock up uh, because. He did did so well for us um, last season. And uh, the big worries the the big worries the, the, sure. the big worries the, the, the outgoings. I've got to say, I think that will depend on where you are in January. You know, if you're um, if you're still in with a chance of staying up, which I would guess you will be, it would be suicide to let a Samba go or a Hoylet go or even a Formica go. Um, but I do worry that if you were in real trouble and things hadn't changed for the better, that at least one of those players would be sold. I think that's um, being realistic because there is every chance I think they might just um, sell a family silver if results haven't perked up by the end of January and um, and plan for the future at, at that time. That is a doomsday scenario, and it's not the start of a conspiracy theory. It's just the way football is, but that does concern me that that could happen. And Samba's 30 agents are pushing for a, a move. Just thirty. Just thirty at the moment. Is that all? <laughs> there have been there have been uh, have been casualties. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I'm I'm really worried about the the Samba one in particular because uh, it's it's just crazy. He's got so many people. Well, you'll know this more than me, Alan. But he's got so many people claiming to represent him. Uh, it, it's just ridiculous, and it's been pushed all over the not just here, all over Europe. Uh, it's going. It's going to be the same old problem, though, because he is on massive money at the club. I mean, the club have been unbelievably good to him down the years. He's on huge money, and he won't find that money easy to get anywhere else. Especially not on top of a transfer fee. That there isn't really a great market for um, Chris Samba with those figures because it's it's a frightening deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if he wants to go, he's going to have to take a pick. I would, I would suggest. You tell him that. <laughs> Especially if he wants to go to Tottenham or somewhere like that, then no way are they going to pay the wages and the transfer fee. Uh, um, so, he's, uh, but his agents are pushing him all over the place, uh, not just in the UK but all over Europe. But um, you know, like I said, he's going to probably have to take a pay cut. Hoyle is a big issue as well. Hoyle, um, I'm sure there'll be bids for Hoyle in January. I um, I would expect you to turn them away. If you uh, if you're still hoping to stay up, um, but if you think that the the signs aren't good, who knows if the money was big enough? I don't think personally at the moment he's playing well enough to justify the 18 million or so that they're looking for him. So you might escape it on those circumstances. But um, it's look, it's going to be a, a, a tricky window for you. So what you need to do is address it immediately and before January starts, get the players in get yourselves out of trouble and then you make the decisions rather than the market making the decisions for you. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they need to strike very early in the transfer window, uh, get the players in and if there's some people wanting to leave, well, 
that sends a good message out to them that look we're spending money we've bought some players in and we're, we're looking to move this on uh, and you, you need to be in control of your own destiny rather than reacting to situations uh, which is what happened in the summer uh, very much so. I mean, the last couple of weeks of the summer really were uh, horrific. Uh, when it comes to a stage where you've desperately got to get Kalinic out the door so you can spend anything, then you were in a, a you were in a terrible place there for a while. Um, you would hope that those mistakes have been learned from, but as I say, I wouldn't count on it. No, I mean the the thing that consistently Venkies have shown is they don't learn from mistakes that they've made, uh, and and. You know, it, it looks well. Let's see what happens tomorrow. But uh, by the end of this week, they need to have told whoever the manager is exactly what the figures are in terms of what they're going to be spent, and then let let people get on with with bringing these players in. But then, do you have any faith in the people who they've got employed uh, to, to bring these players in? Because uh, because frankly, some of the stuff I'm hearing, I don't have any faith in them as well. No, um, the first window which was with the guidance of Cantaro, Jerome Anderson, Philippe Hubert and all the rest of it, was at least efficient, uh, probably very expensive, uh, but at least it was efficient. The summer was under the auspices of Vinnie Throw, the, uh, the nephew, very young nephew, who came in and tried to um, oversee matters. And um, overall, it was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it, really? So they've got to decide, do they keep it in-house, do they keep it cheap or do they maybe have to overpay and um, unemploy agents or whatever. I don't think we'll see uh, Quintaro having a major role in January because I think they are out of favour uh, and I'm sure they would like to be back in favour. Uh, but as a matter of fact that um, in the summer they weren't in favour because they weren't doing the deals. I know there's uh, all the talk that we hear uh, about agents' influence and all the rest of it. I think that's past tense, unless uh, I'm completely mistaken. I, I think if you look at who was doing the deals in the summer, uh, Anderson was uh, was blocked out. Uh, I know it's a very tricky subject, but uh, I couldn't give you a time and a day when it happened. But I, I think since Miles Anderson was signed, that Jerome Anderson's uh, position within the club was weakened. Um, I think that was regarded as a, as a mistake in many quarters. And uh, since then... He's, um, he's been in the fringes. It's, it seems ridiculous that we're looking at who signs the players. I mean, all that matters really should be how good are the players, but I've looked into who signed the players in the summer and it was various various agents all over the place uh, and very much at the last minute. Yeah, and, and it's building that reputation again, Alan. Uh, from what I've heard, there were so many different agents that were messed around in terms of... Right. The, yeah, that's right. That they were told that they, these are the, we want to bring these players in, and, and then nothing happened. Now, once you get a reputation for messing around, and particularly in football, you've got to work so hard to bring that that reputation back up again. So, you know, there's some agents that just won't deal with Rovers anymore because they've had their time wasted over the summer, and and the reputation is is gone with them. So, you know, you, you've got to look at that scenario as well. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that, but look. Uh, agents are agents, players are players. If they think there's money there, then you know, they'll be attracted. So if they're going to try and do it in the cheap or hope to pick up a bargain or something might land their way in the last uh, last week of the window, the last couple of days of the window, like last time, no, that's not going to work this time. 
They're going to have to pay a premium. They're going to have to get the people in early. January's a very busy month. You want to get your team right at the start of the month and not judges in February the 1st or whatever they want to say. Uh, the team has to be right as of January the 1st. You've got to go and get your players. You've got to go and get them now. You've got to get this sorted out immediately. Yeah. On the uh, issue of agents in the game, uh, we've just had uh, the figures published for the year October 1st last year to September 30th of this year. Um, publication of figures for uh, agents' fees paid out by clubs over the year. Um, Rovers have uh, hit the top eight, I believe, uh, having spent over four million on agents' fees during that time. Um, we're just three hundred thousand pounds below Manchester United, who spent somewhere in the region of fifty million, perhaps. Um, if I could uh, bring Nico in here and ask him to comment on on the uh, the level of fees paid uh, by the Rovers uh, compared with previous years. Uh, how do you see that? I think it's a high figure. I wouldn't say it's a ridiculously high figure. Mm. But it's a high figure. Let's say you sign what, eight or nine players, so that's half a million agents' fees per deal. Strikes me as a little bit over the top. Um, on top of that, you had a lot of re-signings which agents would have been paid for. And I'm talking about the players' agents rather than the club's agents at the time um, would have been paid a great deal of money for. So, yeah, that would have been, it was a massive shock to Venkis in the first window. That is why Venkis in, uh, brought in uh, nephew Venith because they wanted somebody to look after the family, uh, family cash because they felt a lot of it was being spent uh, in areas they hadn't anticipated in the, in the, the first window. Um, obviously there would have been money spent in the second window as well. As a combined total, yes, quite high. Not, you know, eyebrow-raising high, but quite high. I did think it was very significant that the previous two years had rovers at 1.2 million, something like that. Now, yeah. let's be fair, we were hammering them, quite rightly, for not signing players. So you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. It, a, a more reasonable split would probably be in the average of those fees. If you'd spent agents' fees at £2.5 million, uh, during the last two years of the trustees, you probably wouldn't have needed the mass overhaul that you've come into lately. Um, you know That period should be remembered. The club was run down in that period because people weren't being signed, people were being sold, and the money wasn't being spent. So let's not... While we give Venkis a bit of a grilling, Let's not forget that the previous regime did not do the job properly because they wanted to sell and they didn't want to spend any money on players. So agents' fees were low in that period. Uh, and that's what happens when you, when you don't spend, you end up in a low position. Uh, and it's an accumulative effect because your squad was short. They inherited a squad that desperately needed improvement. How well it's been improved, obviously, is open to question. But you will have to make transfers happen and you'll have to pay agents' fees. And it'll be the same again in January. Uh, look, I don't have any problems with agents making money in the game. They are part of the game. They do make deals happen. If you had any idea how difficult transfers were, um, you would say, yeah, OK, no problem there. I do have difficulties if the same people are being paid all the time. That doesn't seem right. Uh, but I don't. I would, I'd love to see the, the actual breakdown of that 4.2 million. 
as to what agencies got what. I don't think that's ever going to be provided. That would be revealing. I don't think it would maybe be as um, heavily weighted in one direction as people are thinking because uh, there were, what, five, six deals in the summer uh, where reasonable money was spent and agents were paid and um, there wasn't any Quintero involvement in them. The contentious one is obviously Rashina, which was a big agent's fee. Um, no matter what excuses you hear about it, it does seem a bit over the top to me. Yeah. Over the course of the thing, no, I don't think I don't think it's ridiculous amount of expenditure. And I think if you put it in context of what happened before, that's an explanation. Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, a year on what uh, uh, what kind of levels we've uh, we spent from uh, this. Uh, October to next September and see how that um, works out, how, how the balance is. Uh, as you say, if it's around about the two and a half, three million, then uh, that perhaps suggests that the uh, January outgoings were perhaps a little excessive. Yeah, well, I would hope that uh, those kind of figures are actually spent in the next year or two, because that would mean that you were still recruiting. It obviously won't be the volume of recruitment that was, um, was needed uh, in the January window last year or in the summer. Uh, but if you're going to sign three players, I would have thought if your agent's fees for that window alone were about 1.2, 1.5, uh, that would be par for the course. And then you've got the summer window again. So I would think if the club is in the Premier League and progressing, a figure of 2.5, 3 million per year is not too ridiculous. Mm, yeah. And uh, just to uh, pick up on one thing that you mentioned in the uh, outgoings and targets, um, Junior Hylett, uh, obviously, every time the subject comes up, he's going to sign within the next 24 hours. Huh. Um, now, do, do you have uh, any insight in what's actually going on? I think Cami has suggested that uh, um, the release clause has been the problem throughout the, throughout the uh, negotiations. Uh, what's your view on it? Yeah, that's quite right. I mean, that was certainly the stumbling block that was erected in the summer about um, what uh, what the price would be. This was in the back of Phil Jones, remember, in the price clause there. Uh, Venkis wanted it set at a certain figure. The Hoylets wanted it set at another. And I don't know. I think that was a convenient excuse from the Hoylet camp just to buy themselves a bit of time. They're holding all the aces. His contract's running down. Uh, it's now a period when he could actually go and sign for a foreign club. Uh, I'd sign a pre-contract uh, four weeks from today. That's how close it is. And there's nothing you could do about it. He could actually sign a pre-contract and join another club abroad for next summer. So you're in a very, very awkward position as far as that's concerned. Yeah, of course, uh, you would have wanted him signed up well in advance. You'd have wanted that security. And I'd have to say, I know... The contract offer to him was exceptional, but he's got his own reasons, his football reasons, as well as financial, um, for holding back. And I've got to say, I don't blame him as a neutral because he'll be thinking, wait a minute, if I sign here, um, what's going to happen in the future? Who are we going to sign? Are we going to progress? What's out there for me? Um, sometimes you can see where players are coming from. If, he's, if he thinks he's got a better club around the corner, and his contract has run out, it'll be a deal, it'll be a good football deal for him and a good financial deal for him. So no, I don't blame him on a personal viewpoint. I know what you're saying about the fact that, you know, the club are always saying, oh, he's about to sign, he's about to sign. 
that is a bit of a dripping tap and it's an annoying one. Uh, I know the manager gets criticised for it. I don't think it's actually the manager's position to negotiate contracts. He's obviously been told that the boy's going to sign a contract. To me, as a cynic, uh, I've doubted he would sign a contract all the way through. What you've got to remember, Ed, he was offered good money in the summer and we're now five months later. He has missed out on that good money for five months. And that's a considerable amount of money he's actually ignored for that period of time. Uh, He's on probably half, maybe less than half of what he's been offered. So he could have made a great deal of cash out of re-signing at Blackburn Rovers. He should maybe have considered that, and his dad should have considered that last summer, signed the contract and let nature take its course. Uh, If things didn't work out, somebody would still come and buy him. Uh, But as it is, they haven't. They've gone on in the same wage, and that, to me, points to only one conclusion. They think they're going to be away at some stage, um, most likely at the end of the season, possibly in January if the money's big. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what we fear. Um, Cammy, do you have any final comments on the the transfer window and role of agents at all? Uh, Not really. I think um, Alan's pretty much covered everything in, in really good depth and, and some really interesting information there. Um, mm-hmm. but just like to echo that, regardless of what happens with with stuff, we need to be bringing players in early in the window um, rather than, than at the end. And if we can do that, then hopefully the club can move forward in terms of, of strengthening, uh, strengthening stuff. OK, and uh, Paul, uh, do, do you have any... Uh, thing further to say on the issues? I think everything's been covered there, but the one item that um, I've noticed this morning is an article on sporting intelligence by Nick Harris, which has got a very interesting couple of lines in there regarding the transfer window. Uh, and to quote Nick, it says, senior Blackburn officials will meet on Monday to discuss plans for the January transfer window and officials from Barclays are expected to attend. Now, um, I think that's the first time I've ever heard of the bank being present at a board meeting to, to discuss the upcoming transfer window. Ooh. I think that'll yeah. have a lot to do that'll have a lot to do with what happened in the summer and the fact that the bank intervened with the uh, first payment from the Phil Jones deal. So I'd imagine the bank would have an interest to say, Well, okay, if you're gonna spend that much, when are you reducing your debt? Or what do you plan to do? If it all goes horribly wrong, um, yeah, that's actually, I think that's understandable. You should work hand in hand with a bank. Um, I still feel it was a bit unfortunate the bank decided to cut the overdraft and uh, and use a transfer money uh, lump to do so. Um, I don't think that was too kind. Uh, but um, they've also got to protect their interests as well. Uh, however, funnily enough, people go on about the mortgage and all the rest of it that, uh, that Venkis took out. To me, that's a bit of a comfort that the bank, uh, for all of the problems before, were willing to give them a mortgage on August the 26th. So they they, they obviously regard them as being solvent, um, even if they are a little bit concerned about the, the lack of information and the lack of, uh, shall we say, planning that sometimes seems to be going on. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that's actually comforting to know that... Uh, that the bank are going to be in there sitting down and and going through the figures and making sure they all work. 
Uh, I wouldn't think there's anything too sinister in that, i.e. the banker demanding they sell anybody. Uh, but if that was the case, there'd be some alarm bells going off. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. Um, if the bank are taking a close interest and understand what the plans are and, and what the thinking is behind the transfers and the spending of, of transfer money, then that should certainly ease the situation uh, in regards to you know any fears the bank may have about our ability to repay money in the long term. Well, I would I would say that um, it's a bit like when you first drive a car. You need an instructor with you for the, the first few lessons, don't you? Uh, and I think in this case, the instructor is still going to be in the car. If this is, um, you know, in the financial side of things, Venkies need to be walked through certain um, practices at the moment. And this would appear to be one of them. Uh, there's, there's, there's faults in both sides. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think the bank were a bit abrupt. Uh, but then again, Venkies probably gave them reasons. Uh, for for wanting the the debt to be reduced, so uh, yeah, I know it's a bit long to be still having teething problems a year after you buy a football club, but um, no, I, I don't have any great fears. I mean, the, the, if the bank want to sit in and have a meeting tomorrow, Mrs. Desai probably be in a conference call, I'd imagine, at the same time. Then that's actually quite positive because between them, they should be able to actually put a number out so that the manager knows what he's got to spend. I'm just picking up that article, and I don't know. I know Nick Harris has had contact with Mrs. Desai in the past, but I don't know what his source is. But uh, and a quote from the article: Keane was on the brink. There was this is a source uh, telling Nick Harris: Keane was on the brink. There was little chance of him surviving if Rovers hadn't won the game. But not only did they win, but Mrs. Desai noted that Yakubu ran to Keane after scoring which demonstrated the manager retained the faith of the players. And she noted Yakubu's words of support afterwards for Keane. There's still a mood that Keane is in danger. Some of the senior people at the club think Mrs. Zatai should have sacked Keane even after the win. But Steve is a lucky man because even the results by Bolton and Wigan fell into place for him to allow Rovers to climb two paces and the next three fixtures offer the chance of more points. Uh, so this article suggesting that there's been a, a huge change in the mood over Keane, uh, according to this insider. I mean, this I, I think that um, the timing of yesterday in the terms of the football calendar was just so massive. You know, the stars were aligning yesterday, weren't they? Because you've, he's not been told what money he's got to spend. The money has to be spent. There's the meeting on Monday. Uh, and no matter how much you support somebody, you will ask the question, is this guy the right fella to spend the money? Remember, this time last year, Sam Allardyce was sacked because they didn't trust them to spend their money. Uh, the question remains, do they trust Steve Keane, for different reasons, to spend their money in January? So we're at the same, we're at the same time of year, uh, and yesterday was just so massive for so many reasons. Get off the bottom of the table, or you're out, show us you know what you're doing, or we can't trust you to spend any money. I'm still not 100% convinced that um, he has the, the 100% support. He says he has. In fact, I'm pretty sure he hasn't. But at least, please, somebody, let us know tomorrow. Uh, after the meeting, yes, we're sticking with him and giving him money or no. 
he's not the guy to, to, to hand a £10 million or so to. Uh, let's not have another fudge. Let's have it right. Let's have it out there um, for a change. And let's say, look, this is the way the club's going forward. Um, we know we didn't get it right last window. We're going to get it right this one. Uh, and we're backing the manager. If you're not backing the manager, go and get somebody else. Yeah. Well, if um, if we could just finish off uh, the discussion of transfer win- uh, window issues um, there, uh, I'd like to ask Cami and Paul um, if they could uh, ask uh, Nico uh, about his views on Blackburn Rovers as a club uh, at present and also look back over the last 10, 20, 30 years uh, of his associations with the club uh, and uh, perhaps project some of that to the future. Um, if uh, Cami, I could ask you to come in and ask uh, a little bit about Nico's perception uh, of the club at the present. Uh, could you take over? Yeah. So, Alan, what do you think about the, where the club is now uh, compared to, say, where it was a year ago? Um, what do you think are the main issues, uh, sort of, uh, sort of what the issues affecting it and, and how it can move forward? Well, the, the sad thing is that um, I thought Venkis coming in would mean a new impetus, um, fresh ideas, fresh finance, after two or three years of owners who wanted to sell the place and were basically just letting it drift along, I thought it would give you a fresh impetus. It's not worked out that way. Let's let's, let's not pretend otherwise. It's not worked out at all. Um, but having said that, because of the way things are in the Premier League right now, you know, you've still got scope for putting a few mistakes wrong. I don't know whether they've grasped where they're going wrong. I think that they're speaking to the wrong people. I think they're using people who are not basically up to standard um, and, and don't know quite what they're about at the club. Um, they haven't got adequate experience of, of what they're all about. I think it needs a strategy. I think it needs to be more hands-on. I think it needs to have clear budgets and clear thinking rather than being a branch office uh, of a major empire in India. It... Um, it worries me from that angle. Um, I think they've just. I think they've. They've got. I don't think they're bad people. I keep saying this. I don't think they're bad people. I just think they're. Um, they're slightly out of their depth. And if you are out of your depth, you should really look elsewhere uh, for some way of not drowning. And I don't think they've done that so far. In the end, for all the talk, it comes down to one thing. It comes down to money, and whether they're willing to spend and spend enough to put things right. They've obviously had a plan, which didn't include. Uh, spending more than they wanted. Uh, they seem to be very kind of um, conservative with a small p- a C in terms of how they run their business affairs. And football is is a different animal. Uh, but, look, it's not a hopeless case. It can be brought round. It's not a Leeds United. There's not been stupid spending. It's not a Portsmouth. It's uh, clean money. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, no, if the, if the very worst thing happens and you get relegated, um, there's ways back from that for Blackburn Rovers. It'll be sore. There'll be a great public outcry. But I was there the last time you got relegated and it wasn't a disaster. People say, yeah, but Jack was there. Jack was there, but Jack wasn't spending an awful lot back then. The most inspired thing they did, and it took them a long time to get there in that first season, 
in the, the second tier was to bring in somebody like Graham Souness, who brought the club to life, who gave it a bit of glamour, uh, and who spent when he got in. And he made them spend, probably against their will at times. Um, so that's the way they got out of trouble last time. They don't have to go down this time um, to maybe take that path again. You know, if they think Steve Keane isn't up to it, go for a Souness type figure. Somebody with a bit of glamour, somebody to get Blackburn uh, a little bit of stardust again, and somebody who, you know, will g the fans up and get them on the same side. I've never known the fans more divided than they are at the moment, and that is awful. Uh, the reasons for it are many and several. Uh, some you might not want to go into, I'd have to say, of why mm. they don't like foreign owners. Uh, but you know you can't be ripping a, cl- a, a club apart um, the way the way it is at the moment. Fortunately, the Swansea game stopped a little bit of that. I dread to think what would have happened if you'd lost against Swansea. I think it would have been Armageddon. Um, so yeah, it's low at the moment, but there's a way out as long as you actually know what way to shine that torch. Agree. Yeah, I just one thing. One thing, Nico, um, you're around the club, you know, on a very regular basis, and you'll know uh, the, the the excellent atmosphere that is always associated with Ewood, and how there's a real feeling of it being a, a family club. Um, yeah. We seem to have lost some of that in the last twelve months. And do you think that there's there's ways we can recapture that in the future? Yeah, well, there was the idea uh, of bringing a couple of fans uh, with local connections onto the board and being able to just explain to people uh, what was going on rather than have these odd statements that uh, that come out of India every so often. Uh, and I think that would help. I think, well, didn't Ian Curry and Ian Battlesby go over to Pune a couple of months ago? The two guys you know are Blackburn Rovers fans. Uh, they're not multi-millionaires or anything like that, but, you know, they're kind of, they've been in the financial world, they know the value of a pound, uh, and they're also supporters. So they, you know, I thought that was quite encouraging that it would it appeared they were going to be brought on board. I understand there's been absolutely no contact with them since Puny, um, which sadly is a recurring theme that um, the owners say they're going to do things, never quite get round to it, and, uh, and they wonder why they get stick. Uh, I've got to say possibly the most depressing thing I heard all weekend was that some of the fans who paid their own way to Puny haven't had that paid for them the way they were promised. You know, little things like that are such massive factors in how a club should be run and how it should deal with its supporters. I mean, the Puny thing should have been a good exercise, not just a PR exercise, but a good exercise in getting to know each other and, uh, and knocking down a few barriers. Instead, um, you know, a, a thing like that, you know, when fans have actually paid, some fans paid their own way, were told they were going to be reimbursed and haven't been. You know, little details like that tell me a great deal that they haven't got it sorted out in terms of understanding what a football club is about, uh, which is its supporters as much as anything else. Um, and, you know, for every step forward you think has been taken, there's that step back. So, no, it's an uncertain future. It's a future to be made a little bit more certain if there was somebody on the ground trying to put the message over, trying to you know talk to the fans, trying to nip the protests in the bud 
and it say, look, this is what we're doing. Bear with us, you know, a human face somewhere out there. It's not been the case. I feel a bit sorry for the manager because he takes the blame because he's the focus. I feel a bit sorry for Paul Agnew. He also takes the blame and he's the focus for communication. But these guys are really working with their hands tied behind their back. They wouldn't say as much because they'd end up getting sacked. Uh, but that's the truth of the matter. They're not being helped. I think if they were being helped, even 10% of an improvement uh, would be a massive uh, step in the right direction. Mm, that's very interesting to hear. And um, phew, I hate to think what the reaction will be uh, to uh, fans who, who paid their own way to Pune not getting that money reimbursed as was promised because that was seen as a, a really big thing from Balaji as, as far as many people were, many people were concerned. Well, I was astonished yesterday. I heard the lad Birdie on the radio saying that he'd paid his own way. My, my ears pricked up and I've asked a couple of questions since. And it turns out that um, the, the guys who went independently, not the Pune 9 as we know them, but the guys who went independently who'd bumped into Balaji and Balaji made a fuss of them, blah, blah, blah. Um, they've still not had the money. And you know, for, for ordinary, and I don't mean to be patronising, but for ordinary working class people, uh, that kind of gesture would have, you know, been so important but uh, it's been neglected and that's poor yeah it was a big thing that was a big thing yeah mm. right well it's fascinating listening to all discussing uh, the future of our club and also the various things that have been happening in the last few few months um I'm going to wrap up there now. Uh, we've no major announcements at the end of this um, podcast. Uh, we'll just look forward to the next one next week. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Cammy once again. Thank you. Uh, you're still there. Yeah, but I've got kids uh, breaking down the door. They want to go to the cinema. Right. <laughs> well, uh, don't unlock the door yet. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yes. Thanks for coming on, Cammy. If I survive happy feet too, I'll see you next week. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And Paul, uh, thanks once again for joining us. That's okay, When uh, enjoyed myself as ever. And uh, I really find these very good on a Sunday morning. Yes. Therapeutic. Yeah. Yes, therapeutic. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Nico, uh, thanks ever so much for taking the time out uh, on a Sunday morning to talk to us. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on again. Thank you ever no, so much. No problem, anytime. That's great. Thank you. Also, uh, our thanks to Josh, uh, our podcast producer, Jay Astris B on the phone, uh, and also to Glenn. Uh, they're both in the background uh, doing the recording and they'll be getting the uh, uh, the, this uh, podcast edition up and up and uh, on the board ready for you all to listen to as soon as possible uh, thanks to them finally um, we just have one item for the news in brief section the BRFCS sportsman's dinner which uh, many of you will have already seen on the board um, the very first annual BRFCS dinner uh, will take place on the 16th of March next year. 
Um, it'll be uh, taking place up at Blackburn Golf Club uh, from 7 until 11.30 p.m. Uh, tickets are £35 per person. And our guest speaker uh, for the dinner will be Simon Garner. And uh, also uh, we've got uh, the comedian Mark Ruff, uh, who'll also be appearing. Uh, it's uh, a, a smart uh, uh, occasion. Uh, formal dress is required, but uh, no, it's not a black tie occasion. And it's also open to uh, anyone over 18 uh, on a first come, first serve basis. Uh, if you need more information, just go to the forums and and, uh, and find the uh, uh, forum forum thread for the first annual BRFCS dinner. Well, that's all for this week, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, the next time, hopefully next weekend. Thank you ever so much for listening. Uh, do take care.